All right, welcome everybody to lesson number 12 and page 109 in your notebooks. Welcome everybody on live stream as well. And as I've been saying, if you have a question, those of you that are here live, of course, you can just uh, speak up. Those of you on live stream can uh, send us a question using the chat, the chat button. But I must be explaining things just perfectly well because nobody's been asking any questions or nobody really cares that much. You're just trying to get this checked off your list as something that the church makes you take, okay? So either way, glad you're here. Lesson 12, page 109, upper right-hand corner, you see that it's the doctrine of Christ. So this is the fourth of five sections in part one of Master Plan for Life. So two parts, part one, answering the question, who am I? And we've got five sections in order to do that. Section on the doctrine of God, doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of humanity and sin. And now this fourth section is on the doctrine of Christ. And then after that, we will see the final fifth section on the doctrine of salvation. So the way that all fits together is we look at who God is, we look at what God has said to us and how God has spoken to us in His Word. Then in that third section on the doctrine of humanity and sin, what He has specifically said about us, how we came about as creatures of the Creator and what our problem is because of sin. And now, having looked at God and having looked at humanity, we're in good position to have this fourth section on the doctrine of Christ because He is both God and, and human, God and man. Uh, so He has all of the attributes, all the character qualities that we saw that belong to God, and He also has the attributes of humanity, but He, as we saw last week, never sinned. But sin is not an inherent attribute, character quality of humanity. Uh, that we, we were human, uh, Adam and, in Adam and Eve, before the entrance of sin, fully human. So sin is not something that's inherent to humanity. You don't have to have sin to have a human being. Unfortunately, all human beings now are all sinners, but there was a time when that was not true, and there will be a time in the future when that is not true. We'll be fully human, but without sin. And so Christ, we saw last week in, in His person, it has all the attributes of God, He has the attributes of humanity, and he, he never sinned. And that, then, is what qualified him to do what we're going to look at tonight. The, in Lesson 12, the title is The Work of Christ. Last week it was the person of Christ, and now the work of Christ, his person and his, and his work. So at the top of page 109, we say, in preparation for the content of this lesson, remember this, that what we do is a reflection of who we are. Therefore, having reviewed the essential elements that make up the person of Christ, who He is, we did that last week, now a study of His work, what He has done, is possible. So let's just stop and remind ourselves of that principle. What we do is a reflection of who we are. We do what we do because we are who we are. That's true of God. What God does, He does because of who He is. Who He is determines what He can and cannot do. Who God is determines what He can and He he cannot do. He can do all that's in accordance with His nature. So every, He can do everything that's in accordance with who He is, that's in accordance with his, his inherent nature. And He can carry out then everything that He has planned to do, everything that He has chosen to do. But I say that who God is determines what He can and cannot do. 
there's what he can do, but there's also what he, he cannot do. And I made the point back when we looked at the character qualities of God, way back in lesson number two, there are some things he cannot do, thankfully, like he can't break a promise. <laughs> he cannot lie. And he's constitutionally incapable of doing that. His, it's, it's contrary to his nature, therefore he can't do that. So God acts in accordance with his nature. And so do we. We do what we do because we are who we are. So we sin because we are sinners. And I made that point when we looked at the doctrine of humanity and sin, that it's not that uh, we're sinners because we sin. You know, you don't become a sinner because you sin. You actually sin because that's your nature. You come into this world. I, we all have come into this world with a sin nature. So the sinful things we do and the sinful things you see everyone else do are all because that's, in fact, what we, we are. So Isaiah 64 and verse 6, Isaiah 64, 6 says that all of our even righteous deeds are before God as filthy rags because our nature is sinful. So every even good thing we do outside of Christ, outside of being converted, changed, outside of that, naturally, by nature, even the good stuff we do is still tainted by sin. And if you remember that lesson on the doctrine of sin, I think it was lesson number 9, 10, 10. Lesson 10 a couple weeks ago. If you remember that, we looked at how thoroughly sinful the Bible teaches we are. We are what, what we theologians refer to as totally sinful, totally depraved. Every part of us, mind, will, and emotion is tainted by, by sin. So we sin because we are sinners. Now, having, having come to... Christ, having been converted, we can both please God and sin at the same time. You know, before you come to Christ, you can't please God at all. That's why the, even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags before Him. God accepts nothing as good from the unbeliever. Uh, but after coming to Christ now, you can please Him. But you also still, we also still have our sin nature. So we can both please Him, but we can also sin. Why? Because that's our nature. We now have this dual nature. When you're a Christian, you have these two principles. You have, you have the, the principle of, of spirituality within you, but you also have the sin principle still living within you and active within you. Now there's coming a day when, in the future, in glory that we will have a different nature yet, where we can only do righteousness. We can only do right, because our nature is that we are confirmed in righteousness. We have a confirmed righteous character in the future. So that's why in heaven, that's why in the eternal state, the only thing you'll be able to do is right. You'll be able to do the right thing and for the right reason. Outside of Christ, you can do the right thing, but you never do it for the right reason. In Christ, which is what we are right now, we have both natures. We have the sin nature, and then we have the Christian nature, our new nature. We have both of those operative. And then, so that's true of us, just like with God. God does what He does because He is who He is. We do what we do because we are who we are. That was true before we came to Christ. It's true now that we're in Christ, and it'll be true in the future. It's also true of, of Jesus Christ. 
He was able to do what he did because he is who he is. Last week and last week's lesson, we saw who he is. What is he? He is both God and man. And because he is both God and man, he could do what he did that we're going to see tonight. He could, because he is man, because he is human, fully human, he could serve as our substitute. If he's not fully human, he can't serve as our full substitute. And that's why I made a big deal about, I even brought the book in here, The Chemistry of the Blood, and I read you a few excerpts out of that about you know, people denying that his blood was really human blood. Well, you don't want to do that. You don't want to deny that any part of his humanity was anything other than fully human. Because that, in turn, then, makes it impossible for him to be a substitute. Only a fully human substitute could then die in our place. So he was able to do that because that's who he is. He is fully human. But he was also able to substitute for us in our place as a perfect sacrifice because he is God. He's sinless, perfect, holy. All right, so have I beat that enough that... You do what you do because you are who you are. That's true of God, it's true of us, it's true of Christ and His work. And so what we're going to see that Jesus did tonight, uh, it conforms to that principle. Second paragraph, top of page 109, Since Christ Jesus is God, His work began even before the creation of the universe. Literally thousands of, universe, of volumes have been written regarding His work, yet it remains an inexhaustible study we're going to briefly review these two things, his work before time and his work within time. So since he's existed for all eternity, then he was at work before the creation of the world, but then we'll focus in on what he has done within time after the creation of the world. So first of all, the work of Christ before time. It was mentioned in the last lesson that many people mistakenly believe that Christ came into existence at the birth of Jesus. And as a result, they believe that Christ's work is confined to the period following His birth. So that would be just the last 2,000 years. But the Scriptures reveal that prior to human history, the triune God was active. Because Christ is God, He was active prior to the beginning of time, prior to creation. In the beginning, you know, the Bible starts out with those three words. Well, to, to talk about a beginning means to talk about time. So God created the world, and in creating the world, He also created time. Prior to that, there wasn't time, there was eternity. We get into eternity, you don't have, t you don't have time anymore. So He's at work before creation, before in the beginning. Before He created time, He was, he was at work. That's why we say he was active prior to the beginning of time. The information in Scripture regarding God's activity before time primarily involves what he was doing to plan the events of history, planning the events that would take place in the world he was going to create. And Christ was involved in all of that. So, middle of page 109, Christ was active in planning the events of history, Ephesians 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms, with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He chose us in Him. That would be in Christ. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world. Now, you know, you read those things in your Bible, and it's easy to just go over them quickly 
you know, and you got stuff in there about God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ and blessing and spiritual and all of that. But if you think about what it's saying, He, God the Father, chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Wow. Well, what, is, what does that mean? <laughs> that means that God the Father and God the Son, and also God the Holy Spirit, but in this case, God the Father and God the Son, were actively planning what was going to happen. And God the Father chose us, but chose us in a way that we're related to Christ, chose us in Him. Now, what does what that, what's that mean? What's that, what's that about? Well, let me, this is not in your notes, so you didn't pay for this, but... Here goes, okay? But Titus uh, chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, verse 1, starting the very first verse of Titus. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect. Let me just stop there. The faith of God's elect. Now, what's the word elect mean? Chosen. <laughs> it's the same idea as in Ephesians 1. He chose us. He elected us in Him before the creation of the world. So this is just, this is to, you know, you guys have worked today. You've done whatever you've done. You know, you may have had dinner. You may have not. You slid into home getting here. You're tired. And this is my way of either I'm putting you to sleep or blowing your mind, one or the other. Okay, so stay with it. So Ephesians 1, he chose us. Now Titus 1, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Verse 2, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, now here, get this part now, promised before the beginning of time. God promised this life, eternal, to some people called the elect, the chosen, before the beginning of time. What? Promise to who? I mean, who's God promising anything to at that point? And yet, here you've got, I'm going to take you to another passage in a second to answer that question. But in John chapter 6, John chapter 6, Jesus says things like this, None of those the Father has given me will I lose. I, I, so he talks about people given to him by the Father. So that starts to give you a clue. As to, in Titus 1, when he talks about this promise before the beginning of time, what's the promise? It, one clue is that God the Father is promising some people to God the Son. And if you look at the book just before Titus, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Here's what it says. Verse 8, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. 
Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, verse 9 now, who has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. All right, here you go. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And when it says there, before the beginning of time, that's the exact same phrase in Greek, same phrase as Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. That this promise was made before the beginning of time. So the idea is that God the Father and God the Son consulted. <laughs> they planned. And God the Father said, here's the plan. I'm going to make a people in my image, in our image. I'm going to give those people the power of choice to choose to follow. God knew that they would sin. And He set up the solution to sin. You... God the Son are going to be the solution. And out of this race of people that are sinful, I am going to elect, I'm going to choose some, and I'm going to give them to you for your very own possession. And you're going to go and you're going to purchase them with your own blood. Remember what I said about this all blowing your mind? <laughs> I mean, it's just you really have to chew on that, don't you? But as you think about God planning the events of history and pa passages like Ephesians chapter 1 saying He chose us in Him. And then what I read in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 and 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 and then what Jesus says in John chapter 6. I encourage you to, to really think about that. We'll see it a bit more in the doctrine of salvation. Back to your notes then. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 11. In Christ we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. So here's God planning and predestining, predetermining, that include, included the choosing, the electing of people. So again, we'll see more of this when we get to the doctrine of salvation, but just for now, hey, listen, brothers and sisters, uh, everything, that, everything that's happened in your life, goes back a really long way. <laughs> Nothing random. Nothing random. God's got this. God has had a plan for every moment of every day of your existence. And God, there's some mystery to this. God has mysteriously used all of your choices, used all of my choices. He's used your sin, my sin. And he's brought it all together. So when the Bible says in that famous passage in Romans chapter 8, 28, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. When it says it works all things, man, it means all things, everything. And God planned all of this from, from the beginning, and you were included in that plan. What a great thing to think about, man. You were included in that plan. So Revelation chapter 13, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. The Lamb, who is that? The Lamb of God is Jesus. But, before the, but from the creation of the world, that's before there was even sin. In the mind of God, there was going to be a solution for sin. 
So Christ was active in the planning of the events of history, and that primarily is revealed in Scripture as the planning of your salvation and my salvation. Secondly, though, point B, he was active in creation itself. In Lesson 11 last week, this point was, to sh was used to show that Christ, in fact, is God. This emphasizes the close connection between his person and work. What he has done and what he does cannot be separated from who he is. And so Christ was active at the creation itself. John chapter 1 and verse 3, Through him, that is through Christ, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And remember I told you about John chapter 1. That's verse 3, but there's John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And... I told you that the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own translation of the Bible, and they attempt to minimize the full God deity of, of Christ, that He's not fully God, and so they translate that, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. But in fact, um, it is the, he, is, he is in fact God. Top of page 110, Colossians chapter 1, "...in Christ all things were created." Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So Christ is God, and because He's God, He has existed for all eternity. And because of that then, before time, before creation, He was active. He was active in the planning of history, the planning of our salvation. He was active in the creation itself. But most of what the Bible talks about with regard to Christ is His work within time. And so now we're going, to, we're going to look at that. Not only was Christ active both prior to creation and in the work of creation itself, but Christ has also been active since the creation of time. Please note that Christ's work has involved and continues to involve far more than we can go through here. For example, the next verse in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, says He's at work in sustaining, holding together. The universe. But we're going to look at a number of very important points related to what Christ has done in time. First, let's look at His work in the past. Now, what we just talked about with Him being at work before creation and at creation, that's in the past. But here we're talking about past time. That's eternity past. So when we talk about Christ's work in the past, we're talking about His work in the past, but after the beginning. In the beginning, God created. So what has He done in the past? Christ has revealed God. Now that word revealed, to reveal means to make known, to make known. So... We talk about, if we talk about the, the topic, the concept of revelation, revealing, revelation means making known. So uh, the book of Revelation in your Bible, the last book of your Bible, is making known Jesus Christ. In fact, the very first verse says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. So it's making known His plan, His work primarily related to the future. But whenever you see that word revealed in the Bible or revelation, it's talking about to make known, and Christ has made God known. Now, how has He done that? Well, a few ways. One, 
He was the messenger of God in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. The word angel means messenger. The angel of the Lord speaks as God throughout the Old Testament. He seems to be distinct from both the Father and the Spirit, never appears again after the birth of Jesus, as we saw last week. So most Bible scholars believe he is, in fact, Christ, come in that temporary form. I mentioned it last week. We had that discussion in Lesson 11. So here in Exodus chapter 3, now Moses was tending the flock. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush. Now notice, this angel of the Lord is being called God here. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Christ was the messenger of God, the primary messenger of God in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Secondly, he was the revealer of the Father after the incarnation. So there's that word reveal again. He was the revealer. He was the one who made God known. That's what reveal means. After the, you guys remember this from last week, incarnation? Okay. So, carne, uh, Latin for flesh or meat. So the incarnation is to become flesh. So when we say the incarnation, we're talking about God having become flesh, God having become human. So he remained God, but he added to what he already was, humanity, and he became the God-man. And he was the revealer after he came to earth then. So now we're up to what we celebrate here in a few weeks regarding Christmas 2,000 years ago, and that's the Incarnation. And He revealed, made the Father known after that. So John talks about that, John chapter 1. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is Himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has, those last three words, made Him known made him known. Those three last words, made him known, are a translation of a Greek word that uh, is sometimes translated English word uh, exegete, has exegeted him. And I think I told you all this a few weeks ago, that if you go to Bible college, you go to seminary, you have these classes called exegesis of a particular class. So or of a particular book, so you might take Greek exegesis of 1 Peter. Um, I think I told you guys that my last semester of seminary, last semester, I had a 7.30 in the morning class, first class, 7.30 in the morning, Hebrew exegesis of Micah. Okay. So, so you're going through Hebrew at 7.30 in the morning, you're going through the book of Micah, but it's called Hebrew exegesis of Micah. Now, what's this exegesis thing mean? And this is the word that's used for those last three words, made him known. So to exegete means to make known, means to reveal, to expose. So when you go through the exegesis of Micah or 1 Peter, you're exposing the message of Micah. It literally means to draw out, to lead out the meaning of the book. So you're going through piece by piece, you know, in Hebrew or in Greek. Well, that's what the Bible is saying that Christ did. He leads out. He makes known. He reveals. He exposes who the Father is. So as we say here, the God-man, 
Christ Jesus made God known as no other prophet could. You know, prior to the coming of Christ 2,000 years ago, you had lots of great prophets, didn't you? We have some of them listed there, Elijah, Moses, others. But he could make God known as none of them could. Now, why could he make them known as none of them could? Because, because the prophets spoke about God. Moses spoke about God. Elijah spoke about God. Jesus, however, is the God about whom those guys spoke. You know, the best they could do is speak about God. Jesus is God in who He is. And so He's able to reveal God, make God known what God is like, not only in what He says, but in everything He does. Elijah's a sinner. Moses is a sinner. Jesus is absolutely holy, like God's character. Therefore, Christ Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Old Testament office of prophet. He is the prophet par excellence. So Hebrews chapter 1 says, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now note the hard contrast there. There's the way it used to be, but contrast. Now He has spoken to us by His Son. It's one of the reasons that I am personally a, uh, what's called, here's a big word for you, a cessationist. And it comes from the word cease. So it's saying that I believe there are some things that have ceased. A cessationist. That not everything that you read in the Bible that happened at the hands of the prophets and the apostles happens now, that some of that has ceased. And part of the reason I say that is passages like this. Here's a passage that says, in the past, this is the way it happened. The prophets used to, at many times and in various ways, speak and make God known. But now it's different. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Now that's just one. If you go to the next chapter in Hebrews chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, it talks about the salvation that Christ brought that was announced to us first by those who heard Him. And then verse 4 of Hebrews chapter 2 says, and it was confirmed to us by signs and wonders that they did. Now notice who did those signs and wonders. Those who heard Him. Who were the people who heard Him? That was His first followers, the apostles. So that's why I say, one, one of the reasons I say I'm a, I'm a cessationist, it's one of the reasons that our church then, you don't have us trying to emulate everything the apostles did. You know, the apostles healed, we're in the book of Acts now, you see Peter, he goes to the, Peter and John, they go to the temple, they tell the guy to get up and walk, he gets up and walks. I'm not trying to emulate that. I'm not an apostle. So Jesus is the prophet par excellence. And the final, uh, the the final prophet, ultimately, he appointed his apostles, he's given us his word, and he's going to, of course, return in the future. Top of page 11, 111. So what has he done with, within time? He's revealed God. In the past, he revealed God. He made God known like nobody else could. And he redeemed sinful people. 
So this is the part that we're most familiar with with regard to Christ. He comes, he's born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. We know that he came with the explicit purpose to die for our sins. And that's what we mean at the top of page 111 when we say he redeemed sinful people. The word redeemed in the New Testament is a market term. It means to buy back. It was used of slaves in the marketplace. And Christ, by His blood, we have been, the Bible says, bought with a price, bought with the blood of Christ, bought out of, the, out of slavery to sin. But how did he, he make all that happen? We're going to see in the next section, the doctrine of salvation will be all about that. But here's some very important information about that on page 111. The first thing is, for Him to redeem sinful people, the first requirement is that He satisfy the positive demands of God's law. The positive demands of God's law. So, let's talk about that. What does that mean? I mean, you know, when you, when, when you read that, He satisfied the positive demands of God's law, you could say, well, okay, so there are, there are negative demands of God's law? And that's true. The law is made up of both positive and negative commands. The negative commands are the things you don't do, the things you stay away from. But, but he had to satisfy not just stay away from the things you do wrong, don't do, but he had to actually positively do everything right. And that's why when we looked at the doctrine of sin, I tried to make it clear that, listen, we sin not only in the things we, on the things we commit, but also in the things we omit, the things we fail to do. And he had to positively do all the right things. So God's law has all kinds of things that need to be done. They need to be done the right way. They need to be done with the right mindset, right attitude, all of that. And Jesus had to satisfy all of that. So, my theology professor in seminary used to ask the question, so do you have to be good to go to heaven? And, you know, our immediate response would kind of be, nah, you know, because, you know, we can't be good. None of us are good. There's no one good. Not even one, the Bible says. So how, how are we going to do that? And then he would give us the zinger, and he says, uh, well, as a matter of fact, you do have to be good. Not only that, you have to be perfect to go to heaven. But where do you get this perfection? You get it from Jesus, who satisfied the positive demands of God's law. Here God gives His law, and how many people kept it? Zero. They didn't do the things it says to do, they, and they, they, in fact, failed on the things it says not to do. Did the things they weren't supposed to, failed to do the things that they were required to do. So Jesus lived a perfect life of righteousness. And this refers to what Christ did rather than what He did not do. It's often assumed that Christ's perfect life means only that He didn't sin. That, mean, that is, He never did anything wrong. However, it has to be remembered, sin is not just what we do, but what we fail to be and do. Therefore, Christ's righteousness is found in His conformity to the standard of God's character and actions. He was like God and He acted like God. We often stress that Jesus died for us, but we forget that He lived for us too. So think of it. Christ Jesus was actively obedient on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 5. Christ learned obedience from what He suffered. 
And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Now, when you look at that, you say once made perfect. He had to be made perfect? I thought he came into the world perfect. He did. He's God. So when it says he was made perfect, what it means is this, that in his obedient life, day after day, a process, he learned obedience, situation after situation, he then perfectly fulfilled all of the requirements of, of God in his humanity on our behalf. Now, what are the benefits then of understanding this? Well, before I look at the benefits, let's look at number two. He satisfied the, the positive demands of God's law, living a perfect life of righteousness. Now, what does that do for you, me? Well, that perfect life is imputed to us. Now, do you remember back under the doctrine of sin that Adam's sin is imputed to us? So, so now, before we're done tonight, I'm, I'm going to put on the chalkboard a little chart. But it's going to have Adam's sin... And it's going to have your and my balance sheet. And you got debit and credit. And you get Adam's sin debited to you. That means you owe. In order to get that canceled, you're going to have to have at least an equal credit. Well, this is, your, this is, this is part of your credit. The righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to us. When one becomes a Christian, the righteous life of Christ is imputed to him. We had a definition of imputation two weeks ago. So here's practically what that means if you get that. It should give you a sense of security in your position in Christ. As you sit here right now, as you watch on live stream, as I stand here right now, you know the truth is, man, a, a, a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, None of us knows exactly where we're going to be. None of us knows exactly what we'll be doing. None of us knows exactly how Satan might lure us to do things that we regret. Sin. And if we say we know, we're lying, because we don't. We need to have a little more humility than that, right? But even though I don't know, and there's some, there is some trepidation about that, because I know myself, you know yourself, you know that you are susceptible to temptation and sin. As I stand here, as you sit here, as you watch live stream, if you belong to Jesus, guess what? You have the perfect life of righteousness imputed to you, thanks be to God. And so we move forward then with a sense of security, a sense of identity as to what we are before, before God, that He doesn't look at us, as you know, looking for the next thing we do wrong so that He can destroy us <laughs> and punish us. Quite the contrary, we're His children, and we are that all because of what Jesus did here. So He lived a perfect life of righteousness. That perfect life is imputed to us, and that's all Him satisfying the positive demands of God's law. But B, middle of page 111, He also satisfied the penalties. Now this is the part we're mostly familiar with. Okay, you do stuff wrong, that incurs a cost. That's got to be paid for. Well, he, he paid the penalty. And he did that by dying as our perfect substitute on the cross. He took away our sins, and he died in our place. He thereby accomplished what the sacrifices of animals throughout the Old Testament could only picture, namely the taking away of, of sin. 
So he died as our substitute. And if you look on the next page, that perfect sacrifice on the cross also removed the guilt of the believer. So we no longer have this guilty standing before God. You know, because of our sin and because of the, the cost of, of sin, our position before God was one as, of guilty. Before the bar of God's holy justice, we were guilty. But now that's been removed. We've been justified, declared righteous. The substitutionary death of Jesus mean, is the means by which God removed and condemned the guilt of every believer. So, let me put my chart up there as best I can. You know, come on now. Where is it? How do you see it from way back there? What are you looking at? I thought it was in the corner. Yeah, no, it was over here. There was, uh, there was chalk here, wasn't there? Somebody didn't like my uh, drawing, so okay. You guys will live without, that's okay. You'll live without my drawing. So, you know, I was describing it for you, right? So on, on the left side, if you want to draw your own, you got Adam's sin, and at the top you got debit and credit. And you got lines, okay? Adam's sin. Adam's sin is a debit. And then below Adam's sin, you've got uh, Christ's death. Christ's death. That's what we're talking about here. He died on the cross and he paid the penalty for our sin. So that's a credit. So now you've got Adam's sin has been imputed to you. That's a debit. Christ's death has been imputed to you. That's a credit. So where are you right now? You're even. See, you still don't get to go to heaven now because you're just even. In order to go to heaven, remember what my theology professor said. Do you have to be good to go to heaven? Yeah, as a matter of fact, you've got to be perfect. You've got to have perfect righteousness. How do I get that? You've got a third line. So you've got Adam's sin debited, you've got Christ's death credited, but thanks be to God, you've also got Christ's righteousness credited. So now I'm in positive territory. And I'm not just in positive territory, I'm in infinitely positive territory. I have the perfect righteousness of, of Christ. So middle of page 112, while God's holy love was the motivation for sending His Son to live and die for us, it was His holy justice that made them both necessary. So he, his, his love motivated him to do this, but it was his justice that made it necessary. So here's what we're saying there. Because God is holy, therefore, justice has to be done. Remember, God does what He does because He is who He is. So God does not have the choice of not doing justice. Do you know that? <laughs> he has to do justice. That's a requirement of his nature. He can't overlook sin. So our sin's got to be dealt with somehow. So his holy justice makes this necessary. So now the question is not, is he going to judge sin? The question is, how is he going to judge sin? And in his love, he determined to judge sin, not in you, not in me, but in Jesus. So on the cross, God judged our sin. The wrath of God's justice that belonged to us was poured out on Jesus. And it was His love that caused Him to do it that way. So on the cross, you have two things that you see primarily when you think about the cross. The justice of God satisfying the demands of God's holiness and the love of God, because God Himself has come to do it in our place. 
And that's what we mean by that. So, note, since the life and death of Jesus are required by the justice of God, it's proper to refer to His life and death as necessary. That is, although God was under no obligation to save sinful man, once He determined to do that, the life and death of God the Son was required to meet the righteous demands and penalties of the law. So, Christ Jesus' life and death were not merely a good idea, not just a nice gesture, absolutely necessary. No other method could meet the standard of God's justice. No other method. You see Galatians 2.21 there? If righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If a, what's the law? The law is a list of rules of, that reflect the character of God. God gave a perfect list of rules in His law. But if righteousness could be gained through that, if anybody could actually do that, then you wouldn't have needed Christ. That's what Paul's saying in Galatians 2. Christ died for nothing. This is what puts the lie, friends, to all of the works religions out there, which is like most of them, that say your relationship with God is about what you do. Your relationship with God is primarily a ladder that you climb to God. Whereas biblical Christianity has that ladder going the other way. It's God coming to you. And... They've got, these works religions, have righteousness coming through the, some form of a law. Here's the stuff you've got to do. Here are the sacraments you have to go through. Here's whatever it is. But God says, no, you can't do any of that. And the reason I came is precisely because you cannot do any of that. All right, and then thirdly, Christ rose from the dead. He satisfied the positive demands of God's law. He satisfied the penalties of God's law. And C, thirdly, He rose from the dead. And all of this, all three of those, satisfying the positive demands, satisfying the penalties, are all under the heading, back on page 111, of Him redeeming sinful people. So we're saying here His resurrection, rising from the dead, is part of Him redeeming sinful people. Now, a lot of times we don't think about that. What's the resurrection got to do? with Him redeeming us, buying us out of, the, out of slavery to sin. Well, see, the resurrection is God's, the Father's, demonstrated approval of the life and death of Jesus. The fact that He was raised shows that God the Father was satisfied with the totality of the life of Jesus. What a great thing. So here is Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 5. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then it goes on to say, who, being in very nature God, so Christ Jesus, who is God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But rather, and then it goes on to talk about him taking on the nature of a servant, that is, the incarnation, becoming man. And then it says, and he became obedient unto death. That is, he came as man, even though he was God. 
came as man and then became obedient. That's that Hebrews 5 where he, was, he learned obedience. And having then been made perfect, he was able to offer sacrifice for us. Now it says in Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient unto death. That is, he was obedient all of his life, all the way to his death. Obedient unto death, all the way to death. And the death itself was part of the obedience. <laughs> the death itself was obedience to the will of God the Father. He became obedience, obedient unto death, even death on a cross, Paul adds. To just say, not just any death, death on a cross, a heinous death. To pay for our sin. All right, that's what he did. Now what's that got to do with the resurrection? That's all his life and death. Verse 9, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. Therefore, God has exalted him. He raised him, he exalted him. God has exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, and then it goes on, you guys read it, right? That every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Every knee, every tongue. And then it goes on to talk about whether on the earth or under the earth. Under the earth? Hmm. Who's under the earth? Did you know that people in hell are going to have to begrudgingly acknowledge Jesus as Lord? They don't want to. They'll be forced to. Every tongue. Confess. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, it says. I mean, right there in those verses are like the plan of God for salvation, all of it. And that's how the resurrection then fits into it. All right, page 113. That's Christ's work in the past, time past. Now His work in the present and the future. His work in the present, He intercedes for us in heaven. This means he prays to the Father in behalf of believers. The sufferings of Christ Jesus on earth made him a high priest that can empathize with our difficulties. The present work of Christ in heaven is that of intercession on behalf of, of believers. Here's Romans chapter 8. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. So remember he was the perfect prophet we saw earlier? Now, what is he? He's the perfect priest. As the God-man, Christ Jesus can intercede for us as no other human priest could. There were priests in the first part of the Bible. There were Aaron and Eli and others. Therefore, Christ Jesus perfectly fulfills the Old Testament office, not only of prophet, but of priest as, as well. So do you need a human priest? Now, oh, yeah. yeah, his name's Jesus. <laughs> He's your human priest. He's your go-between to God the Father. It's because of His death, His resurrection. It's because of His work. It's because of you are united to Christ, to use biblical language, that you can come to the Father at all. Therefore, the writer of Hebrews says, we come with confidence before the throne of God. Why? Because we have this high priest, Jesus, who gives us access to the throne room of God. You guys remember the first part of your Bible? How you got access to the, the presence of God? You got the temple? And you got the Holy of Holies, 
where God is. And who can go in there? The high priest. How often? Once a year. And now we can go to the very throne room of God right now. Every moment. Why? Because of our priest. We have the priest who has made the way for us to have access to the throne of God. And then there's Christ's work in the future. He will return to establish His kingdom. God is the king of His creation. Although Satan and mankind attempt to dethrone Him, He will reign as the supreme king. In the resurrection of Christ Jesus, God placed a down payment on these future events. The Bible declares that the living Christ Jesus will return to earth to destroy His enemies, set up His kingdom, and fulfill God's plan for human history. You see that in Revelation chapter chapter 19. So let me just talk about that for a minute. So we are going through the book of Acts on Sunday mornings, and in the book of Acts you have Peter has given a couple of sermons now. Acts chapter 2 he gave a sermon. We just saw another sermon he gave in Acts chapter 4. And in these sermons he's quoting, Peter is, the first part of the Bible about Jesus, and he's proving to this Jewish audience that this Jesus of Nazareth that you crucified is in fact the one spoken of in the first part of the Bible. And part of the way he shows that is uh, he shows that when David, King David, speaks in the Psalms of the coming Messiah, one that's going to sit on David's throne in the future, that this one who will sit on David's throne forever, in fact, David was promised. There's going to be a descendant of yours, David, who's going to sit on your throne forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's where David is given this promise, this covenant by God. One of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. Jesus is a descendant of David, through the line of David, okay? And so he is going to, Jesus is going to return and he is going to have the throne of David like King David did over Israel. But for now, where is he? Where is Jesus now? He's not on the throne of David. I just want to beat on this for a second because there's lots of people, lots of Christians, lots of good people who say Jesus is on the throne of David right now. And I made the point in the sermon a couple weeks ago, nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that Jesus is on the throne of David. What it says is he's at the right hand of God. He is at the right hand of God in heaven. But the right hand of God in heaven is not the throne of David on earth. Jesus is going to return to earth and he's going to establish his kingdom on earth. And he's going to have a throne in, guess where? Jerusalem. And there is going to be a kingdom on this earth. And there will be that kingdom, Revelation chapter 20 says, for a thousand years, called the millennium. In our last lesson as part of Master Plan for Life, we'll see some more about the millennium. Okay, so I'll beat on that some more then. But just for now, he's at the right hand of God, but he will come and he will be on that throne. And he will have the throne forever. When the thousand year... Inter intermediate state ends, then we have a new heaven and a new earth where He reigns, and He'll reign forever, okay? So that's what we mean here about Christ's work in the future. Revelation 19 speaks of Him being King of kings and Lord of lords. Just below that then, just as Christ was active before time, 
He'll be active after the establishment of his kingdom and the end of time. We'll deal with those at the end of Master Plan for Life. So note, as the God-man, Christ Jesus can rule as no other human could. Other kings in the first part of your Bible, like Saul and David and Solomon. Therefore, he perfectly fulfills the Old Testament office of king. Now, have you guys seen these offices? He's fulfilled prophet, priest, king. Perfectly. The work of Christ Jesus as prophet, priest, and king is summarized in the biblical title, the anointed one. In Hebrew, that's Messiah. In Greek, that is Christ. The concept of anointing was used to describe something or someone that had been set aside for a special function. For example, in the case of a king, the title was used as a synonym for a coronation, to be anointed. Therefore, Jesus is the Christ because he has been set aside to function as the supreme prophet, priest, and king. Okay? We're done, man, three and a half minutes early. So we don't meet again until January 19th. We have a full, we have a full month off. Okay? So I'm hoping that you guys will have a great holiday. I'm hoping that I'll see you for several weeks on the Lord's Days in between now and then. And I'm hoping that you guys will just miss Master Plan for Life so much, man, that you'll be back on January 19th. All right? See you Sunday, Lord willing.